Hi everyone, I'm Liam Sanyo from Inside Scientific, your favorite online source for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content helping you do your best work. This episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Carl Peterson and Alexey Verkratsky, who joined us for a recent webinar to discuss astrocyte-mediated homeostatic control of the central nervous system and how optical and two-photon microscopy can be used for functional neuroimaging. Dr. Peterson is director of the EPFL Brain Mind Institute with the goal to promote quantitative multidisciplinary research into neural structure, function, computation, and therapy through technological advances. Dr. Verkratsky is a professor of neuro physiology at the University of Manchester and is an internationally renowned scholar in the field of cellular neurophysiology. Let's jump right in. First question here, I'm going to direct to you, Carl. Uh, Do humans have an analog to mouse whiskers that have single neuronal targets? So that's a a very good question. So in fact, humans are amongst the only species that don't have whiskers on their on our faces. So, of course, we have some facial hair, but they're not whiskers. So in fact, all other mammals have these whiskers. Not all of them uh, turn into individual sort of cortical representations that are unitary in all species. So it's only, in fact, a subset of mammals that have whiskers that have these isolated processing units. But it is nonetheless believed that it's not so different. For example, there is ideas, uh, but I think the evidence still needs to uh, be bolstered here, that, for example, the fingertips uh, of, of, of us are individually represented in what appears to be sort of largely isolated little blobs of cortex. So distinct representations of what sort of are, are distinct parts of the body are indeed normal, uh, but it's a more extreme in the mouse whisker system than in most other. Excellent. Thanks, Thanks so much, Carl. Next question, and Alex, I'll direct this one to you. Is it possible mm-hmm. that astrocytes can induce inflammation, which could in turn damage neurons? This is a very interesting question. So in a sense, the cells by themselves in the brain probably do not instigate neuroinflammation. And of course, it's really very interesting because we don't even know how to define what neuroinflammation is. And for the time being, very often neuroinflammation is considered to be just some changes in those glial cells, let's say gliotic changes, which may happen even without a lesion, which may happen chronically during spring. For the time being, we don't know whether that could be a self-autonomous changes in glial cells, which would instigate the neuroinflammation. From all we know from these cells, that they respond to whatever lesions and neuroinflammation is part of the defensive response, of course, which can become maladaptive in certain contexts. Excellent. Thanks so much, Alex. Next question, Carl, direct this into you. What mechanisms are behind the cortex-wide or global depolarization following single whisker stimulations? They write, it seems rather unspecific in space, so could there be non-synaptic mechanisms like the spread of extracellular potassium ions? Yeah, it it is indeed a a good question. And I think in general, when we image, we have to be very careful, of course, about what it is that we're recording. And many uh, artifacts and unexpected things can turn out in our optical signals. For the specific case of the voltage dyes uh, and the imaging that we've been doing, uh, it, of course, in, it starts off being highly localized in space. So we start off with this small patch of depolarized cortex 
from which it spreads out. Within about a millimeter or so of that initiation site, we've made patch clamp recordings checking on the membrane potential of neurons and find that on that scale, things are highly correlated with membrane potential. And also we've jumped to a few other spots around on the cortex. And every time we've looked, we found that to be very high correlations between the voltage-sensitive difluorescence signal and neuronal membrane potential. That's not to say, of course, that that's necessarily the biophysical origin of where all the fluorescence is coming from, but the correlations with membrane potential are very tight. Now, this also suggests that actually membrane potential of individual neurons uh, is also uh, uh, widely regulated in the brain. Uh, and what really is specific, we think, is the action potential firing. So subthreshold depolarization is a very broad phenomenon. You give sensory stimuli, large parts of the brain depolarize, but that doesn't necessarily mean that action potentials are being fired. You can depolarize a lot without initiating action potentials. And so we think that there's a big difference there between what you see calcium imaging, which is basically seeing action mm -hmm. potentials, and voltage imaging, that's subthreshold membrane potential. Excellent. And I think in the interest of time, we'll just make this next question the very last one. And Alex, I'll direct this one to you. But Frederick writes, in our work, we find that the astrocytic processes to shutter off and on hypothalamic synapses under the control of estradiol, are there other areas of the brain in which synaptology is regulated by estrogen? Yes, of course. I mean, estrogen certainly regulates it uh, everywhere. I don't know whether there are estrogen-related morphological plasticity of astrocytes in other region of the brain. What is certain is that morphological plasticity of astrocytes is one of the very important parts of neuroplasticity. And indeed, these cells can change their synaptic coverage on a remarkably fast scale, and that obviously would cause a very serious changes in synaptic transmission. So whenever we are talking about synaptic transmission, we have to understand that there is there are very concerted changes in neuronal part and in glial part, and by working together, they probably maintain and define what is going to happen with plasticity in the brain. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.